Adrian Ringwood. The substantial cause for me being in this seat tonight is that Thermal Children is in Asia. She's in Singapore. And I volunteered and a few people showed up. So we're going to have a review right now. But first of all, we'll start with uh, setting our motivation. There's a very touching story I came across a few years ago that pertains to this time of year and also the topic that we're going to look at tonight, dependent arising and the different levels of it. And it's a true story. And it goes something like this. So it takes place 104 years ago. Um, and apparently on December 7th of that year in 1914, the Pope at the time, Pope Benedict XV, suggested that there will be a temporary hiatus in the war. So World War I was going full tilt, and everyone thought that the war would be over actually by Christmas or by December, and there was no end in sight, and so the Pope kept asking for a break. But everyone involved refused this, and despite that, a situation occurred in the trenches early Christmas morning. And now, this didn't happen across all of the lines, but in a number of places. And it's been found in many, many journals of soldiers on all sides of the war about the fact that on dawn of Christmas Day, some German soldiers came out of, the ch out of the trenches and they approached the Allied lines in a place called No Man's Land. And they're calling out Merry Christmas in English. So at first, of course, the Allied forces thought this was a trick. And they didn't move and they didn't do anything. They didn't shoot or anything. They just watched what was going on. And then they noticed that all of these Germans were unarmed. And so the story continues that the Allied forces left their side of the trenches too and, and went out and met these Germans in no man's land. The story continues that throughout the day there were games of soccer, people were exchanging cigarettes and treats, they were singing songs. And war in that moment, in some of those places, didn't exist. So the astounding thing of this story is that until that moment, just seeing the shape of a helmet, an enemy helmet, seeing the color of a fabric that belonged to the enemy uniform, that's all you needed to do to shoot the rifle or release the machine gun or use the tank to release bombs or whatever they do. And then in a heartbeat, the enemy became a friend for a few hours.
this situation was never to be repeated because future, future attempts at ceasefires apparently were just squished by the commanding officers. When the news of this kind of getting together was made known, both sides were rebuked by the commanding officers, and he saw this as possibly an act of treason. And so just thinking about this, how quickly our mind can make a profound change based on actually color and shape and deciding that this person isn't worth killing in that moment. Magically, the enemy becomes the friend. And then in a few hours, the next day, the friend is back to being in the enemy category. And the war continued for another four years. So in thinking about this very extreme example, it strikes me that we do this too. Not the killing part, but we see something in someone, we make a decision, they go into the enemy category, they do something else, they're back in the friend category. And friend, enemy, and stranger are all dependent. Obviously, from the example of this story, not existing from their own side. So it's entirely possible for us to make significant changes in our, in our mind, in how we live our life, when we start to really pay attention to everything being a dependent on our Nothing exists from its own side. And what a difference that will make in the choices we make all day long. So let's take the time tonight with this review to really examine these different levels of dependent arising and have our mind firmly set on full awakening. Because this kind of thinking, this kind of practice is going to take us in that direction. So in preparing for the review tonight, I've invited a number of people in the room to take part, and they have happily agreed, I think. Um, and I've asked our videographer to open up the lens of the camera so that more people can be seen in the room. Sure. Pardon me? So everyone stays awake here in the room, too? Yeah. So obviously this topic is massive. Um, we're only going to address part of it tonight. It's a lifetime pursuit, this topic. And um, the way it's laid out in this book, Approaching the Buddhist Path by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Venerable Children is absolutely brilliant. And it's this section takes up only a few pages, but um, it's... 
it's very, very um, inspiring and fascinating to take a look at. So I'm going to start from reading from this book, and uh, then I'm going to use a lot of other resources tonight. I'll be reading a little bit from Good Karma by Venerable Children. I'll be referring to this book and reading from it, Insight into Emptiness, which is a beautiful book by Geshe Jampa Tekchok, edited by Venerable Children. And this is a very important book about the environment, which I'll be sharing from. It has rather a depressing title, but he explains it. It's called The End of Nature. And then there's a 1994 teaching that Venerable Children gave on the three levels of dependent arising when she was teaching at uh, Dharma Friendship Foundation. Some of you in the room may have remembered that teaching. So, from approaching the Buddhist path, they write, In the above explanations of the four truths which Venerable Trini covered last week, several topics repeatedly arose. Ignorance, which grasps inherent existence, the emptiness of inherent existence, which is the ultimate nature of all persons and phenomena, the wisdom realizing emptiness that counteracts ignorance, and nirvana, which is the state of peace attained from doing so. Another essential topic, dependent arising, ties all of these together. The Madhimaka tenet system, as explained by the Indian sage Nagarjuna, speaks of three levels of dependent arising, causal dependence, mutual dependence, and mere designation by terms and concept. And then I'm going to read something from Insight into Emptiness, which is just going to set the stage for this beautifully. So if you haven't read this book or it's been a while, it's an absolutely stunning book. It's so clear and accessible. So, from Insight into Emptiness. Dependent arising is called the king of reasonings because it not only refutes inherent existence, but also establishes conventional normal existence. This line of reasoning is a straightforward and simple approach. The person does not inherently exist because it is a dependent arising. Because the person arises and exists in dependence on other factors, it cannot be truly existent. To understand the import of this reasoning, we must understand the types and the meaning of dependent arising. So, Geshe Jampa Tegchuk goes on to say, the reasoning of dependent arising is the simplest and most powerful to undermine both the appearance of self-existence and the self-grasping mind that believes that appearance is true. This reasoning is so powerful because dependent arising is diametrically opposed to self-existence. If we know that something is dependent, we can easily understand that it is not independent. If something is not independent, it is not self-existent either, because the two are synonyms. There's no way something can be both dependent and independent, so by eliminating one, the other is established. So it all makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? it? Sounds great. And yet, when I look out from my little seat right here, I'm looking out at a room of mostly nuns. There's two monks right here. They exist from their own side. One's a Russian, existing from his own side. There's a bunch of Americans in the room, existing from their own side, radiating Americanness. There's one at the back, an Australian, who's not radiating Americanness. Usually there's two Canadians in the room, but one's in bed. The other one's up front here. So I look at you, I know a little bit about each of you, and you're all reading what I think I know about you. That's how it goes, right? I mean, that's what we see. We see inherent existence. 
and it is not accurate. So, we're going to take a look, first of all, at causal dependence to start hammering away at this problem we have. So this is from the book. Causal dependence is common to all Buddhist tenant traditions, systems. The fact that products, conditioned things, depend on causes. For example, a table depends on the wood, which is its substantial cause. Okay. Here we go. It's a beautiful table. It's a work of art. You've got to come to the Abbey to see this table. The substantial cause of this table is wood. And what kind of wood is it? White? Silverwood. Silverwood. It's local wood. Okay, so Venerable Semke is going to tell us more about this wood. Well, as far as dependent arising goes, it is called silverwood. And um, the wood was uh, found or retrieved by a friend of ours, Jim Talley. And the story goes, last week on the car down to UU, he said that the trees were estimated to be about 1890, 1891, big old silverwoods that the city had to take down. They were becoming... Um, dangerous, and they're also, I think, doing some development. So he managed to f get the pieces, and then he made this beautiful table out of that very old wood for, and that was a whole dependent arising all by itself, too, on how the money came and how it was done and things like that. Totally. And then the person who came up with the idea was a resident here, so that was a cooperative condition, a very important one. Jim Talley was a cooperative condition. Jim Talley's whole life, up to that point of becoming a talented artist, is just many, many causes and conditions there. And so we have this table that you've got to come and see, simply because it's a beautiful artwork. So we've got causes happening. Results arise from causes. They depend on their causes. Without a cause, you can't have a result arise. This is concerning things that are impermanent, that are composites, that are conditioned. This is not talking about permanent phenomena because they don't depend on causes. Everything else, you and me, everything we see around us depend on causes and conditions, and they come into existence. So, in a teaching that Venerable gave in 1994, she goes on to talk more about this causal dependence. And she says, this is something we just accept in life. So we get it, right? We see it all the time. You know, there's causes and conditions. Causes bring effects. We say yes to it. And then she says, you have to create the causes in order to have the effect. And we say yes to that. And then she says something that we all know that we don't really want to hear. But she says, we don't always act in a way that accords with, that, with this understanding. And so she says, we should take time to meditate on causal dependence because it can be quite powerful in seeing how we do and don't do things that accord with this understanding. So the first question she asks us to think about with this problem is, why do you think there's a disconnect between what we intellectually know about causal dependence and how we act? I think it's because since everything seems so separate and set up by its own side that we don't take into consideration how we affect things and how those things affect us. And so we forget about the connections, the mm -hmm. causal uh, links. It seems, well, there's so many causes for any one event 
I don't know if the average human brain can really <laughs> comprehend all of the causes involved in any one circumstance. So it's kind of easy to just throw your hands up and say, well, it's happening for a reason, but I don't know why. Yeah. If you're Catholic, I used to think that it was just, you know, a mystery. Because that's what I heard the priests say. It was just a mystery. It covered just about everything, actually. <laughs> mystery. So that's something to keep thinking about in our own life. When we see that we're operating in ways that don't accord with this understanding, like what is going on here? Then the second point she raises is, or an instruction for us to do is she says, you know, do a life review. So it's December now. Today is December 11th. We're getting close to the end of the year. And she says, anytime, you know, are there experiences in our life where you desired something without recognizing that you had to create the causes for it? So I'll, I'll start here. You know, as a kid, um, I was really into praying. And I thought that praying would solve my problems. And so I really was very, very um, firm about praying the night before a test. Now, whether or not I did the right kind of preparation for that test, I didn't really take that into consideration because I thought if I was earnest enough with my prayers that everything would be fine. Well, you know, the outcome of that, you know, it was the same thing, I've mentioned this before, you know, sitting in the dentist chair as a child, praying to the Blessed Virgin Mary that I wouldn't have any cavities. Too late. You know, the needles, <laughs> the needle that looked like about 14 feet long is heading into your mouth. So my, my faith was tested a lot there. <laughs> here you are. <laughs> <laughs> right, here I am. Um, so... There's someone else in the room tonight that I asked to do some sharing about how she has created the causes for something very, very important. And Carl Malk is here tonight with us. She arrived yesterday. And she has a wonderful story to tell us about how to create the causes and conditions for something that was very important for her. And it may inspire people who want to come and do retreat at the Abbey. You might look at the length of time. You might look at the resources that are needed. And you might think, it's beyond me. Can't do it. Okay, Carol. Okay, well, my causes and conditions were really too much to even contemplate, but um, I formed the firm aspiration to come to a month-long retreat when I came for a week-long retreat in 2015 here. So, um, I you know, did the one week in silence and thought, you know, I really need to do the month. So I remember being on the plane on the way home thinking, you know, how am I going to get the Donna to do um, the month-long retreat because it's substantial. And um, so I thought, oh, I'll make malas and I'll sell them. I thought, oh, that's okay. And I, try, I, did, I made a lot of malas, and I tried that, and then I realized my motivation was very confused. You know, started getting confused about profit. Mm. So I quit selling them and um, gave them away instead. Gave a lot of away as gifts. And, 
but you know, time went on and, um, you know, got distracted with life and, you know, a couple of years went by and then I was trying to work on the Vajrasattva Nindro and then I had just re kind of gotten restarted on it and I, then I saw that the winter retreat this year was going to be for Vajrasattva. This was like a, over a year and a half ago, I think. And so I decided, okay, I've got to go to that one. And I started just when I would get a little bit of money, you know, I would send it, you know, because I knew if I saved it, an emergency would come up and it would get spent. So I just would send a little bit, $50 or $100 at a time. And um, started planning because there's a lot of logistical things. Um, and not least of which was I wanted to be physically stronger when I came back this time. So I started working on getting um, my knee replaced. But before I did that, I did cardiac rehab because I wanted to be physically in a better place, you know, better shape. So I did cardiac rehab and I had knee surgery and um, probably in the last year I did like eight months worth of PT and, and yeah and you know I needed to do these things but there was always part of it was to be strong to come here and then I was also talking to people I knew you know uh, who might be able to help me um, with uh, making donations you know to help um, the Abbey have retreat and to kind of do my part for having retreat. And so quite a few friends came forward and donated money. And, um, and then there was the anonymous donor um, who kind of, you know, finished off, you know, the rest. Um, And then besides that, there's my husband supporting my spiritual practice and being willing to be mm -hmm. on his own for six weeks, mm -hmm. and be here six weeks. Um, and you know, making friends and um, getting more kind of involved in our community. Uh, my husband's Jewish, you know, with our synagogue so that there would be more people to um, offer him social support while he's mm -hmm. gone. So he wouldn't, you know, be lonely and what have you. So there were probably dozens of people involved in all this, just even in the, if you just look at kind of one level of it, mm -hmm. then you can go back and there's millions maybe. <laughs> Thanks, Carol. Kind of, yeah, very inspiring. And may this inspire other people who have the aspiration to come and do retreat, even if it's a week or a weekend, a month, three months. So I'm going to ask Venimal, Semke and Venimal Trini to start talking about the causes and conditions as they know them about this book, at least from one side of the book, Venimal Children's part in this. Um, any book has 
countless numbers of causes and conditions. And because Venomultrini and Venomultrini were at DFF in the early days, and Venomultrini are welcome to pipe up too in Venomultrini, maybe we can get both mics going with two pairs here, and you can start outlining the causes and conditions behind, first of all, this book and the series of books that's going to come from this um, two extraordinary people. I just looked up the years. Um, DFF was founded in 1985 by um, Alan Wallace to bring Ginlam Rumpa to Seattle to do the uh, one-year retreat at Cloud Mountain. Um, and they did that retreat, I guess it was 86, 87, something like that. Um, but anyway, uh, Venerable Children was teaching around the world and kind of had a time when she came back to the States and um, didn't really have any place to land. But she came to DF, to Dharma Friendship Foundation as a guest teacher and made a nice connection and they wanted a resident teacher and she happened to be free and so they made the invitation and so she came. That was in 92. But what's interesting is that in that same year, that's the year she went to His Holiness and said, I would really like for you to be able to, te to um, write a small Lam Rim book that was outlined for people in the West that doesn't start with how to rely on a spiritual mentor and then go right into precious human life and all that stuff about the lower realms. Um, so her time beginning as resident teacher at DFF and her request to His Holiness to write this book happened to coincide in the same year, which I didn't know. When did this book, this one came out? So it was 25 years in the making? Mm, let's see here. 24 years in the making? Yeah, so anyway, as she told the story, it's on her website, that um, His Holiness said, yes, that's a good idea, why don't you start putting things together? And so she did. And she kept doing it, and 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 doing it. And then part of the, one of the great joys being there at the center with her for all of those years was she would go away, as she does now, the past 25 so years, she made a commitment to go and receive teachings, to teach in the world wherever she was invited. And so she would go to India. She would, she, I think she was um, with the board at Dharma Friendship Foundation. I think she had an opening of um, was it three months every year, was it? Six, there was a, negoti a negotiation. <laughs> But during that time, she would go to India, receive teachings from His Holiness, then she'd go to Singapore. And over the time, it looked like this book started taking on a life of its own because I think it, whether it was His Holiness or Hertz decided that not only does it, is it going to be a Lam Rim book, but we want to encompass all the Buddhist traditions. So he asked His Holiness's idea. So he asked her to go to Thailand, so she went to Thailand. She had a very strong uh, uh, connection with the uh, Chinese Chan tradition with uh, Venerable Wu Yin and Venerable Jendi, so she had that piece. And so things started like exp 
expanding even back in the late 90s, even before she founded the Abbey. And one of the beautiful things that would happen when she would go away, she'd come back to the center, and the first night that she would teach, she would tell her story of her travels, where she went, what kind of teachings, which teachers she was able to connect to, all the, the way that she does now with the community more during lunch. She used to make that as a, as a, a teaching the first night back at the center. And so you could see her building up uh, a connection, a history, her practice, her ability to articulate the Lam Rim, to articulate the various, you know, she really got connected. She really uh, appreciated the Pali tradition, the fundamental vehicle tradition. So she started to, even from her own side, because of His Holiness's request, she started opening up her own mind to these different Buddhist traditions. So I think that started moving things along as well. And that was, that's a continual thing. So there's... I think Venerable Children is um, such a great example of someone who has a vision and understands that creating the causes is important. Mm. And it's been a, uh, I know for me it was a great joy to see this book come out in 2017, seeing the journey, some of the journey along the years. In 2004, I had the pleasure of accompanying her to one of those interviews with mm -hmm. His Holiness. And what I know of the books, we've read three volumes, or we have access to three volumes, the third volume's coming out early this year, next year, um, is that she has been able to ask questions that probably all of us would have, well, if we're lucky, we might have them passing through our mind, but we'd never think like, I should really follow up on that and ask that question and get the answer to it. So what, what I've found so far is that I'll read something that she has probably asked His Holiness about, and I'll go, thank you for asking that question. And here's the answer. It, it, it's such a beautiful distillation of clarity on the teachings. Um, so it's amazing to be part of the process now and watching it unfold as these volumes start rolling off the press. It's quite, quite amazing. Mm. So I think the um, the first day that Venerable moved into this house, um, I was here helping as well as Venerable Semke and some others. And um, at that time, to have any idea of what would happen from that uh, was totally out of my mind. And to think about how... Um, this ended up being the perfect environment for her to continue to um, write and, you know, have the conditions to be able to do that in uh, such a beautiful way. So we all know this story, if we're living here, quite well, but the last 10 minutes has totally changed my relationship now with this book. And that's just one of the authors. And then there's her teacher, His Holiness. And so we can, you know, refresh our memory by reading his biographies. But the combination of the two together, uh, I think one thing that I'll be doing the rest of my life is making aspirations that I encounter these two teachers in all my future lives and these books. Because these books will be instrumental in shaping Buddhism for a long, long time. So it's not just a book with a very beautiful cover. It's all of these things and more. So thank you very much for that be beautiful sharing. And then another question that Venerable Children has posed in this whole section here, again, as Venerable Seppel mentioned, 
Animal children is very good at being very conscious about creating the causes and conditions for a result that she wants to have. And so this next question in this group is, you know, what aspirations do you have about the future? And what causes need to be created in order to, to experience those results? So we might have short-term aspirations, long-term. And so I'm going to invite M to speak about some of her aspirations and what she's planning to do to bring this to fruition. This was a difficult question for me. Um, I feel like I'm at a crossroads between my worldly aspirations and my Dharma aspirations. But actually it's more like a roundabout, the roundabout of benefiting others. It's more like a roundabout rather than a crossroads. There are more than two options and I can keep going around and around and around and around. <laughs> <laughs> until I make a choice according to the GPS system that is my Buddha nature or you know wisdom arising from study reflection and eventually hopefully meditation or in a worldly sense just my intuition opposed to the external factors of a crossroads where that would be the stoplight that is my friends mostly my family and other external pressures seemingly pushing me to make a certain turn at the crossroads and I know that I have a pretty solid confidence that I aspire to do good and to benefit others, but how that will look in four months, one year, five years, or more is pretty up in the air right now. You know, but no matter what road I head down, I will still need to create the causes of wisdom, which will look like study reflection and meditation, or it will look like going back to school, learning how to work in schools around the world, or continuing to work with equine assisted therapy. Anyhow, I'll need to create the causes for me to learn how to benefit, take care of, and be kind to myself prior to benefiting others skillfully. But I can always go back to the roundabout and restart. <laughs> <laughs> but if and only if I'm so fortunate to have another day, you know, there's countless number of beings who died today, who will die tonight, who will die tomorrow, and are presently dying. And really, I'm only one breath away from my next rebirth, and hopefully not the lower realms. And I have not a single clear when that's going to occur. You know, therefore, whatever I choose to do to benefit other beings most effectively in this life with the attributes and abilities I have, I need to give up stretching the legs and being too lazy to create the causes for my goals and aspirations. As Narjuna said, life is like a butter lamp in the wind, meaning it can end at any second. And the mere cause of this coming death is merely the fact that I was born. So I suppose my aspiration to benefit beings but how that's going to look and on what level, either long-term or in this life, is about as clear as the thin ice on the paths here. Regardless, I will need to create the causes to internalize what I have previously mentioned further and further and further and further, and to create the causes for wisdom on whatever form that takes, kindness and ethics either way. Thanks, Em. We're going to support you. So causal dependency, as you're hearing, rules out the possibility of things arising haphazardly, without any cause. It precludes things arising due to discordant causes, things that don't have the ability to cause them. So of course we know that barley can't grow from rice seeds, and we know that happiness doesn't come from destructive actions. We know this intellectually. So yeah, we get the first part. Okay. Kale doesn't come from carrot seeds. Okay. But what about the second phrase? 
Happiness does not come from destructive actions. In addition to chemical, biological, and physical causality, karma and its effects is another system of causal dependence. Karma is volitional actions done physically, verbally, or mentally. These causes bring their effects. The rebirths we take, our experiences in our lives, and the environment in which we're born. So, why is it that I, I'll speak for myself, maybe I'm not alone, I'm shocked still when someone dies. Shocked. They might be 95. It's like, what? What do you mean? They were, they were alive yesterday. I spoke to them on the phone. Or we encounter difficulties with someone, and we want to ask, well, why is this happening to me? You know, what did I do to deserve this? Am I alone in these, asking these questions? I'm not thinking I am. So, obviously, karma is another topic that could go on for months and years. We're not going to do that in a huge way tonight. But just to remind you about another resource that's absolutely beautiful. Maybe you've read it. Maybe you haven't. But Good Karma by Venerable Children is going to address this. And I'm going to share a story that she's shared in teachings that I just love. And it just it shows the kind of medicine that's in this book. It's a very powerful medicine. So if you're wondering what the heck is going on in your life and what you can do about it, this is a good place to start looking. So Venerable Children starts off in the first chapter with a story, and she says, I have a special connection with this poem. It impacted my life in a strong but unexpected way. In 1976, when I was living at Kopan Monastery outside of Kathmandu, Nepal, where, as someone new to the Dharma, I was studying and practicing the Dharma. I became very sick and weak. My skin turned yellow and anger percolated inside of me. I had contracted hepatitis A, a disease that Western medicine had no cure for. The illness totally knocked me out physically and mentally, and my bad mood was accentuated because hepatitis A affects the liver, which, according to Tibetan medicine, is related to the element of bile and the defilement of anger. Some friends kindly took me to Kathmandu to see a homeopathic doctor who prescribed some medicine. On the return to Kopan, I was so weak that a friend had to carry me on his back up the hill to the monastery. Taxis were few and far between in those days, and in any case, I couldn't afford to take one. At the time, I stayed in a dormitory where the floor was made of irregularly spaced wooden planks. When someone from the upper floor swept the room, the dirt fell through the planks and onto the people in the room below. Instead of toilets, there were outhouses, pits in the ground with two boards across. Grass mats formed the sides of the outhouses. At night, you had to navigate carefully to avoid falling into the pit. I was so sick that walking from my room to the outhouse was like climbing Mount Everest. Have you ever had hepatitis C? I've heard it's really wretched. Um, Exhausted, I just lay in my room all day. While in my sick bed, somebody brought me a little booklet called The Wheel of Sharp Weapons, published by the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives in Dharamsala. I had enough strength to turn the pages. Verse 9 stopped me in my tracks, and this is what it said. When my body fails, sorry, when my body falls prey to unbearable illnesses, it is the weapon of destructive karma returning on me. For injuring the bodies of others, 
From now on, I will take all the sickness upon myself. So Venerable Children writes, Until that moment, I had blamed my illness and its attendant discomfort on the cook, who had not cleaned the vegetables thoroughly, and on the kitchen helpers, who had not washed the dishes well. Well, who Who wouldn't come to that conclusion, right? I mean, really. Now... Dharmarakshita was telling me that my experience was the result of my own actions. Looking at it from a karmic viewpoint, I saw that the sickness was rooted in my own actions, probably created in a previous life or lives of physically harming others. Or perhaps the karma was created when, as a young child, I piled up all the snails in the garden and stomped on them with glee, mistakenly thinking I was doing something good by ridding the garden of these pests. Or perhaps it was due to swatting flies in the summer, Another activity I took great delight in as a child. Of course, we were taught to do those things, and we thought we were helping our family doing those. That misery was due to my own actions doesn't mean I deserve to suffer. Karma is not a ticket to punishment. Rather, it meant I could no longer blame my misery on others. Whatever I had done to others is now coming back to me and I had to take responsibility for my previous actions even if I couldn't remember them or didn't know specifically which destructive actions were now ripening as my suffering. Actually, it didn't matter because I knew I had certainly not been an angel. The wheel of sharp weapons made it clear to me that karma is like a boomerang. Whatever actions we do return and have a similar effect upon us. That moment was a turning point in my dharma practice. Previously, I had thought, dharma's nice, I should practice it. But I was lazy in doing so, seeing that my miserable experiences were the results of my own actions, which could be traced back to the ignorance, anger, and clinging attachment in my own mind. I now wanted to practice Dharma. The difference between should and want is enormous. This is the key part here. The latter, wanting, is supported by wisdom. The should is limp obligation. Looking back on having hepatitis, I'm grateful for the experience of being sick because it dramatically changed my approach to life and to Dharma practice. It got me going on the right path, a path that is still benefiting me and others four decades later. So the whole book is like this. There's very poignant verses and then venerable children unpacks it in a way that is so accessible so you know rather than googling you know whatever it is that's going on with our body right now you know or whoever's apparently the problem in our life like come on let's get real let's open that book up so venerable children says if we have a deep sense in our heart about karma and that karma exists and that it brings effects This has a profound impact on how we live our lives. Whereas if we don't have that conviction and we just have the mouth level of knowledge of karma, then we talk a lot about karma. We probably give other people advice. But when it comes to making decisions about what to do and what not to do, our mind uses the eight worldly concerns as the criteria for making our decisions. And we know where it goes from there. So in thinking about all this and, you know, taking advantage of the information that we get and then not acting, I was really curious about times in my life where I have information and I don't act when I know I should. 
And a couple months ago, I was looking at this book. I think some of you have read parts of it, or all of it probably, called Altruism by Mathieu Ricard. And there's a section here that's very compelling and lots of food for thought here in it. I think this book came out in 2015, but it's just like it was written yesterday and probably will have that effect for a long time. So he tells this story. One day the Dalai Lama was asked what the best conduct, what the best conduct would be to follow if a criminal entered a room and threatened its occupants with a revolver. This is not a very impossible situation anymore. He replied in a half-serious, half-teasing tone, Well, I'd shoot him in the legs to neutralize him, then I'd go over to him to stroke his head and take care of him. He was quite aware that that reality is not always this simple, but he wanted to get across that an energetic action was enough and that it was not only useless, but harmful to add hatred to it. So such a position immediately arouses questions. Well, are you going to give up defending yourself or defending your country faced with an attack? These are questions that are happening now every day in almost every country. Do we have to let dictators oppress their people and massacre their opponents? Don't we have to intervene to interrupt a genocide? These questions asked out of context, and this is the important part, imply obvious answers. Yes, we have to defend ourselves against an attack. Yes, a dictator should be eliminated if that's the only way to avoid countless sufferings. Yes, genocide should be stopped, should be prevented at all costs. But, he says, one should also ask the right questions. Here's the key here. If one finds oneself driven to such extremes, it is because one has often for a long time turned a blind eye on causes of discontent or neglected to undertake everything that could have been prevented the attacker from attacking us and a genocide from occurring. We know too well now that the warning signs of practically all genocides have been ignored when it could have been possible to remedy them in due course. So this is true of genocide. This is true of interpersonal conflict between individuals and countries. If we look at the situation in France right now, I'm not a political scientist at all, but this weekend France is gearing up for weekend number five of conflict. They're anticipating that the Yellow Jacket people are going to come out again, even though they've begged them to stop because of this recent shooting in Strasbourg. And even though Macron is trying to, you know, appease people by, you know, actually listening to their demands, um, things are really not going well there. And, you know, the people have been trying to say something to him for a long time, to the presidents, and they haven't been listening. So these things are avoidable. So sometimes, obviously with karma, things happen and it's only a Buddha who can tell when these things will ripen and how long it'll take and all of that. Um, I've had the experience in my life where something happened quite early in my life that I didn't even know was harmful and it's coming to fruition now and it started in my 40s and is continuing to happen and it's a form of skin cancer called basal cell carcinoma. So just in case you have kids, 
around, running around. Um, here's the story with this. The damage to our skin happens as children between the ages of 1 to 18. You know, unless our parents are really actually helicopter parents, and who wants that? And they've got a hat on our head and sunglasses, and they're constantly covering us with... Um, Sunscreen. Sunscreen, thank you. Um, not having a normal life, you know, we're out there getting burned. If you have fair skin like I do, the risk is even higher. So I certainly had an attentive mother and father. They loved me dearly. When I was a kid, sunscreen, not so much. Hats and glasses, maybe. But, you know, we were playing outside a lot, so I got burned like heck as a kid. And then, of course, I went skiing. I got really tremendous burns on my face there. So, this damage happened before I was 18, you know, so life goes on. And then all of a sudden one day I see something on the side of my head that looks like a pimple, and I don't do anything about it, because I think it's just a pimple. At age 40, you have a pimple? Come on. So I let it go, and it got bigger, and it got bigger, and then I tried different things. I tried hiding it. Even though I didn't really wear makeup, I tried putting makeup on right here covering it up because I thought it's just something that's going to go away. Well, by the time I went to the dermatologist, it was like this big planet on the side of my head. He said, did you notice that there was anything going wrong here? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't cover it up with makeup. <laughs> so I postponed, I delayed, I denied. And the thing with basal cell cancer is it shows up decades later. So there it is for me to experience the ripening of karma that happened a long time ago when I didn't really know anything, and it's coming out now in this way. And so what a great example of the ripening of karma that will show up later. You know, there's no denying it. And so now every year, some of you have the same experience. I get to go and visit the dermatologist and, you know, have every part of my body checked for the next thing that will probably happen. Bottom line, you've got kids in your life, cover them up, smother them with love and attention, and get some of that sunscreen on too. So, back to causes and conditions. With our mental states, we can also create the causes and conditions. We can create the causes and conditions for anger, we can create the causes and conditions for a mental state like love. So, Venerable Jampa, well-named, is going to lead us through how to do this, how to create the causes and conditions for love in our mind. Yeah, this is a, a continuous practice for me and um, work in progress. And um, what is most important, I think, is um, it's the same of all other practices, right? Like when you want to develop some kind of meditative stability, you have to have ethical conduct, for example, as a basic. And um, But what I found most profound for developing loving-kindness is actually that you cultivate um, harmony and uh, peaceful state of mind within yourself and towards others. Um, for developing loving-kindness, one has to develop this within oneself first, towards oneself. So you have to make peace with your history, for example. You have to understand... Um, your afflictions and willingness to work with them to uh, overcome those. And then the second thing is to extend that to others. So you need at least one person you are um, 
uh, you admire, you're able, let's say you're, you're willing to live with, yeah, for longer. <laughs> and that is the person you are actually focusing the practice of loving kindness towards. And um, uh, you do that over a long period of time, and then you can extend it into daily life. So um, that's basically a summary of it. There's a lot of information in the news these days about the environment. And this is a very important book that I really uh, encourage people to take a look at. You can get it in your library easily. Um, when I first encountered this book in 1989, I was teaching at the time, and our principal was very progressive and very well read. And he was really all over this book. And this book has a very depressing title. The End of Nature by Bill McKibben. So I read it, and I'm embarrassed to say at the time, I thought it was a story that was a little bit far-fetched, even though this person is a scientist and he was quoting all kinds of research to say, you know, it's, it's 1989, you know, in about 10 years, we've, well, we've got to change things in 10 years. Otherwise, the planet is heading towards something that we won't be able to turn the direction on. And so, living in Alberta, I was all about getting my, you know, first new car and driving that car. And, you know, I could have taken the bus to school. It might have taken an hour and a half. But I really didn't think there was a problem because it's Alberta. And Alberta was just busy getting oil and gas out of the ground like it still does. And, you know, the planet is pretty big anyway. Um, what's, what's the big deal here? You know, chill out. So... Everybody did. Everybody did mostly chill out. And I'm going to read a few passages from here that are quite telling about how we've really got to address our habits and how we live. So this is the second edition of the book that came out in 2005. So the first edition came out in 2000, in 1989. Sorry, 1880. 1989. <laughs> Hello. So he says this. I write this introduction in late fall of 2005, thinking back 17 years to 1988, when as a young man, I was hard at work on the end of nature. It was the first book for a general audience about global warming. There were details then that no one yet knew. But sadly, the story has played out as I expected at the time. By now, everyone knows more or less what's going on. This is writing in 2005. Still, it's astounding to watch how deep and relentless the change has been. On this morning, for instance, Hurricane Wilma, the record-setting 21st named storm of the year, bears down on the Gulf of Mexico. The pressure in its center this morning was the lowest ever recorded in the Atlantic. It follows by a few weeks the unmatched destruction of Katrina, and by a few more weeks a paper in Nature demonstrating that on average, Hurricanes now last 60% longer and have peak winds 50% greater than a generation earlier. In the late 1980s, we didn't completely understand the sensitivity of the Earth's physical systems to shift small to small shifts in temperature. Most of the scientists I talked to then would not have predicted that a one-degree rise in global average temperature, which is what we've caused so far, would be enough to so thoroughly disrupt the planet. But it has. The world is a different place, more chaotic, 
storm-tossed, disease-ridden. Here's one way of saying it. In 1968, when I was a boy, Apollo 8 sent back the first pictures of our planet, that blue-white marble floating in space. Well, those pictures are as out of date as my high school yearbook photo. The planet doesn't look like that or behave like that anymore. There's more blue and there's less white. There's more cyclones swirling in the tropics. It's a different Earth. We might as well hold a contest to pick a new name. Which brings us around again to politics, to the realm where we will make the collective decision on whether or not to restrain ourselves. Seventeen years ago, I said I thought real change would be extremely difficult because addressing the issue meant altering the fundamentals of our lives. In important ways, modern human beings are machines for burning fossil fuels. Therefore, to level off fossil fuel consumption, much less reduce it the 70% the scientists say is necessary, involves tinkering with virtually every facet of our daily lives. We would need to change the ways we move ourselves around, the spaces we live in, the jobs we perform, the food we eat. So there's one last passage here I'm going to read. Because as we can see here, if we don't make those kinds of changes like really soon, which are fundamental, our comforting sense of the permanence of our natural world, our confidence that it will change gradually and imperceptibly, if at all, is then the result of a subtly warped perspective. Changes that can affect us happen in our lifetime, in our world. Not just changes like wars, but bigger and more sweeping events. I believe that without recognizing it, we have already stepped over the threshold of such a change. We are at the end of nature. By the end of nature, I don't mean the end of the world. The rain will still fall, and the sun will still shine, though differently than before. When I say nature, I mean a certain set of human ideas about the world and our place in it. But the death of these ideas begins with concrete changes in the reality around us, changes that scientists can measure and enumerate. More and more frequently, these changes will clash with our perceptions until finally our sense of nature as eternal and separate is washed away and we will see all too clearly what we've done. It's rather sobering. And it's not meant to depress. But I think um, we need to be pushed into action and to really start examining each one of us. Unfortunately, we have venerable children who's very, very concerned about how we use resources at the Abbey and our fossil fuel imprint. But I think we all have to really look at this and take responsibility and make the change like now. Bill started asking us and these scientists in 1989. So the second type of dependency, we're kind of running out of time here, so we'll see what we can do here, is dependent designation, which has two branches, mutual dependence and mere designation by term and concept. Mutual dependence refers to things existing in relation to each other, long and short, parent and child, whole and parts, agent, object, and action. 
Our body, which is a whole, depends on its parts, arms, legs, skin, and internal organs. The organs and limbs only become parts and depends upon the body as a whole. So, if we look for, at a, this piece of paper for an in, example, an easy little example, what parts do you see? What parts could you talk about with this piece of paper? Front? Back? Left and right? Top and bottom? Edges and corners. Edges and corners. and shape. You're doing really well. White. North, south, east and west. Thinness. Rectangular. Smooth. Sometimes smell. Mm -hmm. Wrinkles. We're talking about the paper. <laughs> so even uncompounded space has parts. What are they? Empty space in the north, empty space in the south, so on. Our body has parts, we know those. Consciousness doesn't have directional parts because it's not a physical object, but it does have temporal parts, which are moments of mind. Yesterday's mind, today's mind. So, matter, so no matter how short the duration of consciousness, it still has parts. Therefore, there's no such thing as a partless moment of consciousness. So I think I'll just, I'm going to start skipping things now, just to... <laughs> of the time that we don't have. So this is kind of fun to do. Um, so if you haven't met me in person and you're just looking at me through the camera, you have no idea how tall I am. And some days I'm feeling quite tall. <laughs> And you might say, oh, Samton, yeah, she's the tall nun at the Abbey. Yeah. If you had only seen me through the camera lens. But then, you know, it doesn't last too long. Well, actually, I have to tell you this. In Indian Nepal, I'm tall. <laughs> I'm, in fact, chunky. <laughs> I can see the tops of people's heads. But then someone like M comes along. <coughs> Actually, it could be anyone else at the Abbey, too. Okay, so now you're seeing that my story about being tall isn't, isn't any longer so true, so we've got tall and short here. But, you know, if, if M goes away just for a minute, I can be back to being tall. <laughs> but M's going to come back. And now Venerable Seppel's going to join in. 
And Emma's going to think that she's, well, we're thinking that she's inherently tall. Of course. But. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Is it close? Oh. Yeah. Close. No. Well, okay. Wow. Just a bit taller. So Emma's no longer the tall one. I'm still the short one. In fact, I get anyone else up here just about, and I'm still the short one. So, I'm not inherently short. I can find friends who are shorter than me, but Em's not inherently tall, and Sepple's not inherently tall. Okay, thank you. So more about mutual dependence. It's, it's a hard black cylinder. It's a hard black cylinder. It weighs about six ounces. It's about an inch thick. Three inches in diameter. And it's usually made of vulcanized rubber. I don't know. So, the very interesting thing is, this becomes a hockey puck only because there is the game of hockey. And because there's a goalie guarding a net. And because there's defense people. And because there's forwards. <laughs> and because there's skates. And there's hockey sticks. And there's referees. And an ice rink. Or an arena. And apart from this, this thing, this hard cylinder, would it be called a hockey puck without those other things? It couldn't even function as a hockey puck without those other things. And then the scariest thing of all is that there are some venues in the world that can hold 21,000 people, and they're all looking at this black cylinder. <laughs> and some of them are spending more than $250 to watch this black cylinder. And then there's these young men, well, and young women too, who, mostly I think it's the men, who can earn anywhere between 10 million and 13 million dollars a year hitting this thing around. <sighs> but actually, I was hoping to find the hockey puck, because we had a hockey puck that was part of the striker for the gong. So when it was the striker for the gong, was it a hockey puck? No, it was part of the gong striker. And because the Abbey never throws away anything, I spent a lot of time today looking for the hockey puck, which I couldn't find. So I thought for sure some people would know, but no one knows. So I went into the workshop, the tool shop, and I saw this thing. I thought, there it is. I knew it wasn't thrown away. So I've been misleading you, and I'll have to confess this at the next posada. <laughs> I told you a lie. This is not a hockey puck, because it doesn't even meet the standard things I told you about the hockey puck. Hmm. 
But can you imagine what would happen if you went to the arena and you'd paid $250 for that seat in the arena? And they go to center ice for the face-off, and everybody in the arena says, there's no hockey puck. <laughs> Do you have a hockey game? You're going to have a riot that's going to be worse than Paris. I'm telling you, people will go berserk because this black cylinder made of vulcanized rub, rubber <laughs> isn't in the building. They do. So I found these two things in the... I don't know what they are. So now we have the same problem as last night. We see something, we don't know what it's called, and we're not sure what it's for. I think it's for buffing. Anyway. Okay. Moving on. So, uh, during the... Gongchen teachings, Venerable Children was talking about these three levels of dependent arising, and she came up with these great questions in red here. So I've got three happy individuals here who are going to tell us a little bit about their identities, and we're, we're going to get a chance to challenge them on their identities and what happens when you know, they're challenged. So we're first of all going to start with Venerable Nima. Thank you, Venerable Nima. And I'd like you to identify, maybe in light of time, maybe not all of your identities, but maybe pick the... The two that are the strongest for you. I have multiple identities. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. So um, I think that my strongest identities are um, a mother, and also I am a um, um, Hispanic woman. So I think those are my stronger identities. Yeah. Okay. So. We're going to go through each of these. Uh, so you hold that identity in relationship to some other factors. What are those other factors? Yeah. Well, the first one about being a mother is because I have a child. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, being Hispanic because of being born in, um, in Colombia, in South America. Yeah, yeah. So those are the... Uh, that's the... Mm, the identities depend upon those uh, two factors, mainly. And when those identities are challenged, oh. like if someone says to you, well, if you were a good mother, you would? Uh, I get, there's a fear. There's, I think there's a lot of fear. And there's also a lot of anger. And, um, and yeah, those are the main, um, the strongest afflictions that, that come to the surface. Um, and um, yeah, sometimes they and they make me do things that um, I don't particularly appreciate about myself. I particularly use harsh words. Um, they make me um, yeah sometimes uh, get jealous. Um, they make me discriminate. They um, make me. Uh, a helicopter parent. <laughs> so yeah, some of the yeah some of the actions that I create under the influence of those um, identities. And how does it make you feel that who you think you are is dependent on things that aren't you? Mm. 
confused. <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, it's confusing because it just it um, it feels as if these identities are given, like mm. they exist outside of any other context on their own and it feels like uh, if I'm not that then do I even exist like what am I if I'm not those things um, so uh, yeah it just um, they feel like it's so solid like they um, undeniable solid observable um, yeah, that's basically how I could describe it. Thank you. Okay, we've got two more happy volunteers. Ermel Tenzin, tell us some more. Two identities? Um, when I, I w was asked to do this, I think I worked it out, worked through uh, dependent rising. I didn't mm -hmm. get it, it's actually about dependent uh, designation, but I think I, I can try to work it out this way too. Okay. <laughs> so, a couple of uh, identities. Uh, I identify myself as a person of um, uh, that shares values with Democrats and liberals. So, it's a bit about political views. Uh, uh, views, yeah, and uh, that I'm Buddhist. Mm. This is too main. Mm -hmm. Not main. There is, it's, there is many identities, mm -hmm. actually. Yeah. And... Um, and what kind of uh, factors um, due to which I uh, identify myself as a um, democrat, liberal, uh, would be existence of different kinds of political views, uh, different political um, um, structures of the societies and uh, yeah I was more focused about on dependent horizon I don't know how to work if I really understand uh, the factors what what does it mean here what are the things that are contributing to you having this particular identity I think it's a uh, mm, predispositions from past lives, uh, the imprints, um, also uh, the society I'm living in, so my teachers at school, uh, my close friends, because they are, of course they share my, mm -hmm. and support my identity, because we know it's a valid basis to build up relationship, so we can uh, we can uh, resent together about uh, someone's um, you know uh, outrageous initiatives and uh, actions of uh, the rules of this world. Um, what else? Um, reliance on authorities. Like his Holiness the Lama, who gave us an example, because he think uh, he he resigned uh, of 
as being uh, as a Tibet political leader in March of 2011, 2011. and he emphasized that it's important nowadays for uh, Tibetans to um, um, yeah, what's the word? Apply? No. Uh, no, dem democratic. Uh, de uh? Yeah, uphold. Uphold? Did you say uphold? Uphold democracy? Yeah, sounds good. Um, so, also. Uh, hmm? Yeah. Um, also, reliance on science and uh, Buddhist logic that emphasize the importance uh, that, that all people are equal. Uh, worthy of respect, love, and care, and the same about environment. Mm. And when this identity uh, are challenged, this identity is challenged. Uh, there is feelings, feeling of righteousness, rise, mm -hmm. uh, subtle or gross uh, impartiality in the form of aversion to people of different views um, and there is a wrong attention uh, focusing um, uh, only on negative aspects of person who is upholding different kind of views um, it's like picking up you know all the negative uh, behavior or speech and, and such and such, all kinds of aspects of a uh, person's character. And what the neg uh, what uh, negativities do these afflictions lead uh, me to create? Uh, I'm not killing anybody, not fighting, thanks to my uh, Pretty Moksha precepts, but there is a, a worthless chatter, mm -hmm. uh, harsh words sometimes, mm -hmm. Uh, what else? Mm. Divisive speech, not much, but sometimes. And, of course, wrong views. So it's mostly actions of on the level of body. Uh, no, uh, speech and mind. Yeah. So thinking about um, mm, uh, wrong views in terms of... Um, Believing that uh, the person is uh, permanent and his views are, are permanent and all the aspects that make him and condition him to be like this are permanent. That is actually not, it's actually the conditioning actually out of your attention. You, you, you can't see it if you don't look closely, if you not investigate, if you're not uh, questioning uh, this. So the question, the last question is how uh, does it make you feel um, mm, that who you think you are is dependent on th things that aren't you? Mm -hmm. mm, maybe I didn't think much about it, but it feels okay if I lose this identity. It's quite strange. It sounds strange. It's identity. It's something that I hold into. Mm -hmm. Probably there is just lack of investigation, I think so. Fair enough.
because yeah, people saying confusion and fear, mm. but I don't see it. But probably it it wasn't challenged. I didn't face mm -hmm. very strong uh, situation that would challenge this identity. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Last person, Mermelo song. Um, I guess I can think of lots of different identities I have and that I've had. I could think of in positioning a family of being um, a, a son, a brother, an uncle, a nephew, a granduncle, a, a um, grandson. And my grandparents and my parents are dead. Am I still a grandson and a son if there's no mother and father and grandparents? Yeah. Though, I, I don't know, what yes or no to that wouldn't make that much difference to me. Um, but then I, I identify as a Buddhist, as a monk. Um, and also something, I don't know what, label to put on it, but um, as someone who's capable of doing certain kinds of work, like I've been a gardener and um, I've been a forest technician and, and I kind of identify strongly with being able to be outside and working, doing different things, carpentry work and such. And that would be, um, those things are dependent for sure. I mean, obviously the positions in a family being dependent on, being a son is dependent on having parents, you know, and such. But um, and being a Buddhist is dependent upon there being Buddhism, which is dependent upon Buddha having taught, not only um, become enlightened and come here, but having turned the wheel, and others having um, upheld those teachings and passed them on for so long, and having the proper karma to meet with them, which I don't think I did for half of my first half of my life, <laughs> more. Um, but then the, the identity of being... Um, capable of doing certain work and identifying strongly with that work is it is definitely dependent it's dependent causally dependent on having been taught that and um, and having been in the conditions where I learned that but on um, that identity is in relation to to those jobs and and then what's challenged that for me has been Partially my health, having wanting to be outside doing certain things and just not feeling healthy enough sometimes to be doing a lot of the things I want to be doing. And also what challenges that is, um, in some ways with the maintenance stuff being, um, being around more complicated systems than I'm used to, because I was um, really like... Sometimes a ghetto builder, I could build out of nothing. I could build two different houses for $4,000 each. And um, 
just to be working with complicated systems that have to be by certain rules and stuff, as we see Venerable Tarpa spending a lot of time educating herself about and keeping on top of. And then that shows me how little I know. <laughs> and um, when an identity is challenged, what arises, afflictions arise in your mind. Well, with this particular one, of um, when it's challenged, um, sometimes frustration, not one, not being able to do what I want to be able to do, and I'm um, identifying heavily with it. Not identifying so heavily with sitting in front of a computer, <laughs> um, not wanting to see myself that way, because I had a lot of. Um, resistance to computers and so then there's an identity I was trying to avoid and um, what negativities do things maybe if somebody questions my ability I might be defensive and angry or Um, unrealistic attachment to, to being capable of doing something that my body doesn't really want to be capable of doing. And how does it make you feel think that who you think you are is dependent on other things? Um, I don't feel like that's a negative thing. I think that's, it's, it's a good thing. We are interdependent. And we can look at that in a very good way and say that we feel related to each other and connected. And we can look at the kindness of others. Others have taught me a lot of things. And um, an identity of being related to my family in the ways I mentioned. I like that. And definitely um, the identity of being a Buddhist monk um, is definitely dependent on things that aren't me. That all the teachers and, and the teachings, the Vinaya, um, I'm grateful for those things. Thank you. So, the time is almost over and I, I appreciate everyone sharing so um, honestly and carefully and thoughtfully, and I think it will help my meditation practice just thinking about what you've shared. A friend of ours recently sent a letter talking about letting go of identities, and I asked him if I could share this, and he said yes. I'm not going to say his name. Some of you will get it figured out right away. But um, as I was thinking about these questions and some identities that I hold on to strongly, um, like physical fitness, having good health, physical strength, agility, maybe we're ambidextrous, maybe we're multilingual, we're talented in some way, we have a mental capacity. In reality, as we know, all of these things are constantly changing. And if we have the karma to live for a long time, these things that we may be clinging to, that are part of our identity, will become weaker, and we'll eventually lose these aspects of ourselves. 
simply through the aging process. And how are we going to be with that? So this is what our friend wrote just the other day. He says, it's been a year since my knee surgery, and it's not like a normal knee. What proved even more challenging is my experience and diagnosis with Parkinson's. It has allowed me to practice deep acceptance, presence, mindfulness, and slowing down. I also ask myself, how will I use this ripening of karma in my life to nurture deeper wisdom and make this into spiritual practice for me? I contemplated my situation and what life has taught me so far, and I set my intention for my new journey. He says, if it's better for me to be ill, I pray for the blessing of illness. If it's better for me to recover, I pray for the blessing of recovery. If it's better for me to die, I pray for the blessing of death. A mind training tradition prayer. I vow to bloom where I am planted and let go of my suffering. I wanted to manage my earth suit, now you know who it is, my body, and at the same time not create a solid self. I started to look within and ask myself, who's sick? Am I my illness? Can I just keep my awareness and presence as I notice what arises in my body and mind and emotions? Can I let go of rejection, impatience, and fear? If I do that, what happens to my mind and emotions? I chose to set my motivation. Whatever symptoms arise in my earth suit, be it a teaching for me. May I use it to deepen my compassion and wisdom that may be a blessing to all beings in every realm. I remind myself I'm a caretaker of the earth suit, that my consciousness is associated in this life, is associated with in this life. The body is not who I am in totality. So I know it's late. We're going to touch very briefly on mere designation by term and concept. Just very briefly, you're saying no? Okay, we won't then. I've got someone lined up to do something, so I think I'm going to barge ahead. So, in looking at this, Venerable gave an example in one of her teachings about looking at my problem. So I asked Venerable Lamsel to think of a problem she has right now. I could have asked any of you, you all have a problem, I have a problem, I've got a problem right now that's getting too late. <laughs> and I've got people shaking their heads at me, and I'm just going to go ahead because I know that Venerable Lance is prepared. So when we start to look at things like our problem, we see how our mind is grasping at inherent existence, it makes a really big thing out of what's not really a big thing. We start projecting a type of existence on this and a whole bunch of meaning onto phenomena they don't have. Okay, you want to tell us about your problem? Um, well, my problem is that uh, my grandmother is 80 years old. She lives six hours away from all her family, or most of her, all her three sons. Her sister is currently dying. She's very stressed and sad and upset. And I'm all the way half across the world and can't really be of much help. And she refuses to move to Sydney, where she'd have more support with taking care of herself, various things, because there's all these problems arising. So my problem is my concern and uh, 
concern about her well-being and wish to control so I can have ease of mind about how she is being taken care of. And so where is the problem? Uh, the problem is my grandmother's uh, unhappy mental state. And is she unhappy all the time? No. Are you unhappy all the time about this? No. And it is a problem. Well, how unhappy is my grandmother? I don't know. I'm not there. Is it, would it actually be better for her to move to Sydney to be with her sons? I don't know. At 80 years old, moving out of a place she's lived in for 10, 15 years, would that be a wise move to move her out of all her social support? Probably not. Um, her sister is inevitably going to die. This is what happens. So her grief over that, can I remove that? No. So what we see with problems, and they're real problems. There's no doubt this is a real problem. But the problem can change from one day to the next, and our view of it can change one day to the next, and our interpretation of what we think the problem is. And sometimes we haven't checked in with the other person to see if it is a problem. And then we think that it's our duty to solve the problem that isn't a problem for the other person. And so it gets quite um, convoluted. And that's a problem. <laughs> so I'm not going to read what I have left here. It's too late. That's a problem. Um, thank you to everyone for sharing tonight. Um, I think we've taken apart some aspects of the hardness of reality that we project on everything and everyone. Uh, the teachings are magnificent. Thank you, Venerable Children. Your Holiness the Dalai Lama. May we all have long lives and keep working away at this ignorance that is preventing us from seeing things as they really are. And may we all have the fortitude to continue looking in our mind and heart and applying the teachings. And thank you for bearing with me. It's five to nine. It's time to stop. So. <laughs>